lives Let's travel the world together She can make it easy and in any kind of weather No TSA, no bad checks, no cotton down She's talking from the skies and sending lots of feel-good sounds Oh, Betty, in the sky, have you heard her yet? She loves traveling, there's no doubt Betty and the Jets Oh, she's weird and wonderful Oh, Betty, she's a podcast queen She's wearing high heel shoes Got her wings on too You know I've never seen a better stew Hello and welcome to Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I'm Peg and I'm a flight attendant for a major airline and I bring you stories from the airplane, from the flight attendants and the pilots, and from traveling around the world. In this episode, we have stories about feeding pilots, broken bones, uncomfortable showers, and a wayward cobra. Let's get on with the show. I was on a flight to Europe, and there was a weird lady in first class. It was like kind of hard to pinpoint why she was so weird, but just seemed like every encounter with her seemed she's just like, like a little off. I mean, nothing major. Uh, just little things like every time we're I'd go by her, she'd say, "Um, can I get a Coke in the can? Just don't open it. And I'm like, all right, next time. Can I get a Diet Coke in a can? Just don't open it. Okay, uh, can I get an orange juice in a can, but don't open it? Okay, can I get a ginger ale in the can, but just don't open it? So it was obvious she was like shopping for her hotel room in first class. I mean, these tickets are really expensive. She was not an upgrade. She was a regular passenger. Who knows? Who knows why she was like squirreling away all these sodas in her bag from first class. Whatever, it's fine. Oh, you know, whatever. Everybody's different. But I'm in the galley with another flight attendant, and because of all the security procedures after 9-11, uh, we always need to have a couple people if we're going to hand something off to the cockpit. So uh, they had already called and asked me to cook their meals. So I was in the lady comes up to go to the bathroom. Now, I'm in her sight line. The other flight attendant is not. And I say to the other flight attendant, um, I'm going to need you to help me feed the pilots. And this lady goes, okay. And I'm thinking, and she goes in the bathroom. And I'm thinking, does she think that I'm asking her to help me feed the pilots? I'm going to ask a first class First, I'm going to ask a first class passenger to help me feed the pilots. We were both kind of laughing. And then she came out of the bathroom and goes, well, how many pilots are there? Like whether or not she was gauging whether or not she was willing to help feed them. You know, if there were like 30 of them, <laughs> she, she was not going to help. So as you guys know, my job has been really great lately. I've been calling it vacationing at work. I've been on safaris. I went paragliding in Cape Town. I've been whale watching in Maui. I mean, it has been van freaking tastic until came home from Amsterdam, had a 50-hour Cape Town layover. Uh, This was, I came home on Saturday Cape Town was going to be on Thursday. 
Sunday, I went swimming laps. I was planning on kayaking later. Life is great. And uh, the flight was late from Amsterdam. And then my commuter flight was late. And then I hit traffic. It made a really long day. Okay, so lots of times I unpack. I try to unpack the day I get in, no matter how tired I am, just so it's done. But I was... That day was long, and so I had just put my carry-on bag on the steps to take upstairs later. And uh, the next day, I went swimming and everything. I was coming down the stairs to go do laundry, and I guess I got my foot caught in the strap of my carry-on bag. I was probably going too fast. I tend to go too fast. I tend to have a lot of energy. And I went airborne and landed knee-first on the tile kitchen floor. And I knew I had hurt myself. I knew I was laying there going, oh, life just got real. Life just got real. And basically what it's gotten is it's gotten real boring. (laughs) Not at that moment. I'm just saying I'm laid up now. So I landed knee first, got up and I heard some ripping in my knee. Uh, I knew it was bad and it was a Sunday. So I went to urgent care, had some x-rays and I was told that I fractured my patella. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, well, you know how kids will break their arm? Well, you broke your knee. And that's when it's like, not going to Cape Town on Thursday. I had two 48-hour Rome trips. I was going to go to um, Florence and Verona. (laughs) I had this great month planned. And then the next month, my friend was having her 60th birthday as she rented a house in the south of France. I'm seeing all, as I was on the kitchen floor, I'm seeing all these plans going out the window because I had, I had arrived (laughs) in my job. I had arrived, had all these great trips, and now I've arrived on the kitchen floor. So, took a couple days to see the orthopedist, and uh, he said I had a 50-50 chance of having to have surgery, and I was going to be, it's probably going to be at least three months. When someone says three months, you go like, oh, three months of doing nothing. Oh, my God goodness. Anyway, uh, he said, well, in mob movies, they threatened to break your kneecaps. He said, the reason why they threatened to break your kneecaps is because it's bad. It's like, okay. And then he wanted to know if I wanted pain medication. I just am not a medication person in general. I said, I don't really like to try anything because, but if people like it, people get all strung out on, uh, I just figured it's better not to try it. And he said, I'm looking at you, and you do not seem the type who is going to be strung out on the street homeless because you take some pain medications because you broke your kneecap. (laughs) So anyway, I didn't take them. Uh, And uh, basically, 10 days after the fall, um, got to go back to the orthopedist. He told me I had a 50-50 chance having to have surgery. He said that first week was really important to not rip it any further. It's totally immobilized. I have this giant thing basically on my whole leg. Can't bend my knee. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to do everything possible because I want to make this recovery fast and I want to be good. You know, you got to walk for everything. My job, the traveling, I just need, uh, you just don't appreciate how much, how 
you don't appreciate anything until it's gone. <laughs> it's just walking now seems very, very like a high ticket item. So I did everything and then some. And uh, after the follow-up, he said there was some bone regrowth. So I now have three weeks of still immobilization to see if I can't grow more bone. So basically, <laughs> what am I doing these days? I'm not going to Cape Town. I am not going to Italy. I am not whale watching and snorkeling in Maui. I am on the couch with my leg up. <laughs> it's uh, It was really hard at first because it's like um, mental whiplash. You know, it's like you go from a lot of excitement to the excitement for the day is hobbling out to get the mail. That's my traveling <laughs> right now <laughs> is my big adventure to go get the mail. Ugh. I want to give a special thanks to Kevin Elliott, who was so nice to send me some stories and he didn't know that I had broken my knee. So he just happened to find a show like it and send me some stories, which was fabulous for me at the moment, considering I don't have a lot of airplane stories when I'm not getting on an airplane. Some years ago, I was doing some work with a client based in Omaha, Nebraska, and I was on my way home. I was a little late, and I was actually the last person to board the flight. It was a 737, so three seats on each side of the center aisle. When I got back to my row, I looked down at where my seat should have been. There were two people in the row, but the two of them took up all three seats. They were rather large, if you know what I mean. It was a, a woman uh, that was on the window and then a man that was closest to me. I said to him, I think this aisle seat is mine. And he just sort of shrugged at me. I didn't know what to do. So I went back up to see the flight attendant. You're, you, she told me, you need to take your seat, sir, in a, in a really firm sort of Irish brogue. I can't. Uh, someone is sitting in my seat, I told her, and I don't see another empty. She asked me for the seat number, and then she marched down the aisle, and I followed right behind. She got to the row and immediately recognized the problem. She said to the large man in that Irish brogue, right, um, you're going to have to hoist yourself over and out of this man's seat so we can take off. And he did. He grabbed his girlfriend's seatbelt and literally hoisted himself over toward the window. Well, I sat down, buckled my seatbelt, and I reached back to lower the armrest that he had raised between us. But he plopped back down onto me before I could get it down. So now I'm buckled and buried under a pile of person. And the flight attendant was there and watched the whole thing. And she just said, good, we'll push back. And as soon as it's safe, I'll come back and get you. And then you can sit with us up in the galley. I was a little shocked and kind of crushed literally kind of crushed oddly though i was kind of relieved that the pile of person on top of me smelled freshly scrubbed almost like dial soap or something the taxi and climb out seemed to take forever but in just a few minutes the irish flight attendant was back okay hoist again and i'll take this man back up to the front she ordered the guy hoisted i unbuckled my seat and slid out from under him and i was able to breathe again now here's the funny thing we walk back up toward the forward galley, and the flight attendant says to me, you know, this is your fault. I'm a little surprised. She says, you Americans are so litigious that the gate agents are scared to say anything to passengers who obviously won't fit in a seat. 
who wants to get sued? Um, I was just glad to be breathing. So I sat in one of the jump seats. They gave me a Diet Coke. The two flight attendants are now looking through some paperwork, and the and the uh, Irish lady asked me if I was a frequent flyer and was I married. I said yes and yes. She proceeds then to write me out two passes worth an upgrade to the best class of service available for a flight anywhere in the world. All I had to do was buy a ticket, and I'd be able to have one of the best, well, I'd be able to have the best seats available for my wife and I, and wherever we were going, anywhere in the world. I thought that was not a bad trade for having to be squashed for a few minutes on takeoff and landing. So everything's a bit of a challenge. I have a friend who's like, oh, how's the gimp? And I'm like, yeah, everything's more difficult when you're a gimp. So uh, I've been taking a shower like every three days. Luckily, I have a downstairs shower that's a walk-in shower. But it's basically, I. the orthopedist said, if I don't rip my knee any further, I can get away without having surgery. And I'm highly, 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 highly motivated to not have surgery. And I'm highly motivated to get back to my exciting life, right? Okay. So the shower is a production because it's when I'm going to be the most vulnerable because I'll be taking this immobilizer that I have that's almost the length of my entire leg off. Now, I figured out that I got that not as good immobilizer that's like a foot long when I went to the urgent care and the orthopedist was like, this thing's terrible. And I was thinking, yes, I know it doesn't really keep your leg totally straight. So, but I can take off my big immobilizer, put on the not as good immobilizer that I don't wear every day. So you're not supposed to really get any of them wet, but I figure I don't care if I get the bad one wet because I'm not wearing it except for when I'm taking a shower. So this is a big production. So I have to have my leg straight to take the one off to put the other one on. And this is when I'm really trying to be really careful not to bend it so I don't rip it so I don't have to have surgery. So a shower takes hours. <laughs> hours because, okay, so I get everything that I need prepared. So I have the bad immobilizer. I have a towel there. I have this chaise lounge where I can, I can take the, put, get up on there with my legs straight, take the one off, put the other one on. I have a dress on a lot of information, but my Carolina room where the chaise lounge is, is, is all windows. And I don't have any window coverings in there because I don't normally need window coverings in there, right? Okay. And then I have these big windows, which is great to have big windows. I have these great big windows on the side of the townhouse. Great. Not great when there's somebody up on the roof next door who's now looking in as I'm trying to do as I'm basically trying to take a shower. Nobody wants an audience when you're trying to take a shower. <laughs> but this is all because I'm a gimp and it takes a long time and I don't want to hurt my knee. So there wasn't anybody on the roof at this point when I'm on my chaise lounge with my skirt hiked up to my hoo-ha so I can take the, I have the mobilizer off. So now my, my, leg, my knee 
is exposed, going to now try to put on the other one. And here comes my neighbor running out. Now she's looking in the Carolina room because there's a guy up on her roof. So she's talking to the guy on the roof. And now I have two people, two people watching my my super sad shower. (laughs) And I thought, F them. I don't care. I'm not going to jump up and try to cover. I'm not, I'm not. I need to take a shower and you're the ones looking in my house. So I just put the dress down, laid my back down. And I thought, you people do what you need to do. I'm just going to lay here until I can get on with this <laughs> important don't hurt yourself shower that I don't want an audience for. I was traveling home from a really tough trip in Korea, and it was Thanksgiving Day. Time difference, right? It was Thanksgiving Day there. Not quite yet Thanksgiving Day at home. I was exhausted, and I just learned at the check-in counter that I'd been bumped from my standby business class seat into coach. Now, I'm six foot four, a big, big guy, tall guy, and the idea of sitting in coach for that long was just dispiriting. When I got through security and up to the gate, there was another check-in line, and there's an American girl at that counter, cute, blonde, perky. She asked, how are you doing? Horrible, I said. I just learned that I got bumped, and I have to fly coach, and I'm going to be all scrunched up in the back. It's going to be Thanksgiving. I, I just want to be home. Then I, I added, how are you? I, I'd sort of flipped a switch, I think, of some kind. She said, look, I've been, she kind of leans in, I've been posted here for four months, and I'm not able to go home for Thanksgiving at all. I really understand. I wish I was at home. Then she asked me sort of like this kind of knowing thing, would you trust me to work something out for you? Absolutely. I said, so... Then she asked me for my passport. She had my ticket. She asked me for my passport. She said, just go sit down and relax, um, but you're going to be paged. And when you page, I just want you to go along with me and my story, okay? And I said, okay. So I handed her my passport, and I go sit down. It was a little bit before we were, before the boarding was, was about to begin, and I was just sort of people watching. All of a sudden, I hear the page over the PA system, uh, all in English, asking me to report to gate 1A. So I pick up my briefcase, and I go over to gate 1A, and there are about four people, like, you know, in uniforms, they're all with the airline, standing there together, including including the cute uh, blonde girl, and as I'm approaching, they all look like sort of happy and in anticipation, and the blonde girl comes running up and gives me this huge hug. She says, I'm so glad you were here, and I'm just really going to miss you, and she almost had tears in her eyes. Now it's kind of my turn, and I like, oh my, yes, I can hardly believe this. I'm really going to miss you too. Then I kissed her on the cheek. It seemed like the right thing to do. Um, she gives me a big hug again. And then she says, all right, I want you to call me the minute you get home. And she hands me my passport and the new ticket folder and waves goodbye. So I'm now heading for the boarding gate. And I can see that she really does have tears in her eyes. The gate agent there takes the ticket, sort of tears the stub off and hands the ticket back to me. And she says, go ahead um, and get on. There's almost no one in Club Pacific on this flight. I'm thinking, hmm, Club Pacific. I move into the jetway and look at my ticket. It's 1B. So I turn around. The blonde girl blows me a kiss. I blow her one back. Everybody else is sort of excited and 
whatnot. So I get on the plane, it's a 747, and the upper deck is configured for this special level of service that was just absolutely better than grand. I think there were about 16 seats uh, and about three flight attendants. So really great service. Uh, there was a shellfish bar, there was a regular bar, um, and then just these super luxe first class seats. I didn't know what had just happened, but that nice girl uh, at the airport in, in Incheon, Seoul, spun some kind of story to get me onto that super Club Pacific service. And it was the best airline experience I've, I could have ever imagined. I made it home for Thanksgiving and I made it in style. So my world has slowed the F down. It is, uh, uh, you know, I usually have a pretty exciting life, and now I'm having a very dull life, but, you know, it could be much worse. keep telling myself it's a, it's like three months, so I can do it, but uh, now, like, going to the grocery store is like a adventure, because it's an outing. <laughs> so I might be seeing some products I don't normally see, because I'm also walking slowly, so I don't even know what aisle I was in. It's just in a regular grocery store. I just saw this little step plastic that has like three little steps so you can put your spices to organize your pantry, and I thought it was like $5, and I was like, oh, you know, I have time to organize my pantry. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is kind of a smart little thing, and uh I'm checking out, and the lady who's checking me out goes, Oh, do you have a little dog or cat? And I was looking around thinking, I don't make dog or cat food. And I realized she she thought the little steps were for a dog or cat. But these are the size of a uh, like a couple inches, like a for spices. And I said, Well, that'd have to be a really small dog or cat. It'd be like a gerbil. I said, it, it, it's for spices. And she was like, oh. I'd like to thank any of you who were so kind. And when you were going to buy something on Amazon, you went to my website, bettyinthesky.com. doesn't cost you any more. It supports the show. All you do is go to my website, click on any of the Amazon links, and I thank you so very much. And I like to see what people buy every month. This month, somebody bought Dragon Slayer on Blu-ray. I don't even know people still used Blu-rays. Someone else bought Mojo Marinade, and somebody else bought Wrinkle Schminkles. I Wrinkle Patch. I like that that name, Wrinkle Schminkles. Anyway, if you're going to buy something, just consider going to my website. You can even bookmark it to make it go even faster. And I thank you so very much. I was coming home from a trip to Brazil, and on my itinerary, it said Sao Paulo to Los Angeles. So... Imagine my surprise when we start an approach to make a stop in Lima, Peru. I'm thinking, hmm, okay. As we're taxiing in to the airport, though, we see the lights of the airport go completely dark. Completely dark. As we're at the gate, the pilot comes over the PA and says, this is just going to be a short stop, and you've probably seen that the power is out at the airport. 
we're going to let you go into the gate area if you need to stretch your legs. And there's a little bit of light in there, but if you want to stay on the plane, don't worry, this won't be a long stop. We just have a few passengers that will be boarding. This was really weird. So the door opens, and a few of us make our way off the plane. And they had a little bit of like portable lights and flashlights, little lantern things in the uh, boarding area. And it was somewhere around midnight, and the airport was all closed up, and now the power is out. It was just kind of surreal. Now there are about 35 or 40 of us in the gate area. After a few minutes, the flight attendants start saying, they're getting a little anxious. They start saying, okay, it's going to be better if we all get back on the plane. Okay, so I shuffle back with the others, and there's only now minimal light on the plane, too. So it's just a few minutes later, the power to the airport comes on, and then now the plane returns to normal again, gets all lit up. Now we get some new passengers starting to board, and it was just unbelievable. These were people in traditional Andean sort of clothing. Um, many of them are carrying little cages with animals, like chickens, other small birds, and there was even a guy with some sort of big fat lizard in a in a carrier. And they're not talking about little French bulldogs here. You just never know what you're going to see uh, in this wonderful, crazy world of ours. But we eventually made it. This came from listener Keith, and uh, this is from August of. 2022. I get things and sometimes I just put it in a this Pan Am bag. I put some stuff in there and I think I'll get to it at some point. Well, guess what? I have time to get to things at the moment. I'm calling myself the gimpy gal. (laughs) I've got a gimp. (laughs) Uh, Right now, as I'm recording this, because I do it at different times, I'm two weeks. I'm two weeks into my Initial three weeks in the leg immobilizer. Okay, so anyway, back to Keith. Keith sent this and he said, While working as a university research engineer, I flew with my boss to Cape Town to visit our colleagues at the university. My boss went over more often than I did, so when we reached the gate in Cape Town to fly home, he warned me that we might have to do a second security check before being allowed to board the airplane. Sure enough, we were moved from the gate area to make another queue again. You'd think everyone would know what couldn't be taken on the plane because there was a taped there was a taped announcement on constant repeat Every minute, it seemed. We were behind a very dapper man who had what looked like a seriously expensive briefcase. He placed this on the table in front of the security guy who asked him to open it. As he did so, the security officer's eyes bulged and his jaw dropped. He was looking at a full professional grooming kit in a fitted interior. So he saw scissors, nail files, metal combs, and and all kinds of things that weren't allowed and hand baggage. You can't take this on the plane, sir. Why not? I did it coming down. I don't care about that, but you can't take it on board here. This went on for several minutes before the gentleman, the dapper gentleman, slammed the case shut and said, you obviously want me to check it so you can steal it here. He threw the case across the table at the security guy. Guess who didn't make it on the flight?
The second story from Keith. Thank you, Keith, for sending me these, and sorry it took me so long to air them. But the second story said he was flying out of Gatwick on EasyJet, and they have a one-cabin bag policy. It wasn't a cold morning, but there was one strange-looking fellow wearing a really big, bulky raincoat, and he was standing awkwardly when talking to the gate agent. So the agent said, how many bags, sir? And he said, one. And the agent gave him a resigned look. And he said, please take off your coat. And the guy was like, I'm not going to take off my coat. The agent's like, please take off your coat. I'm not going to take off my coat. Please take off your coat. This goes back and forth. He finally takes off his coat. And he has three more bags hanging around his neck under the coat. Guess who didn't make the flight either? My uncle, Ed, sent me this next clip, and it was from a Zoom performance called Pan Am Betty with Leslie Goddard, and uh, it was like basically a speaking engagement, and here's a little clip from that. Believe I was there. I was the luckiest person in the world. And before long, I could have told you the best place to go in Sydney if you need a haircut, where to go in Tokyo for a really good manicure. Sometimes I would be in Hawaii two or three times a month. I could drop off my dry cleaning on one trip and pick it up the next time I was in town. In the 1960s, very few of your friends and neighbors flew. Only maybe 8% of Americans had ever been on an airplane at all. And here I was. I was eating exotic foods like poi in Hawaii or seaweed in Hong Kong. It was a million miles from what any girls I'd gone to high school with had ever dreamed about. One time, I bid on a flight to India just so that I could go see the Taj Mahal. Soon as I was in the crew hotel, I called down to the lobby. Uh, any chance I could get a car to take me to Agra tomorrow? The voice on the other end of the telephone said, please calm down. <laughs> I, I'm calm. I'd just like to go to Agra tomorrow. Please calm down. We went back and forth like this for about five minutes until I finally figured out he wanted me to come down to the lobby, which I did. And he arranged a car for me. The driver that day filled me up with information. He took me driving past snake charmers and pointed out sacred cows to the magnificent Taj Mahal. It was an unforgettable day. And of course, this job was a shopper's dream. I once was working on one of the around the world flights. Every day, Pan Am had two round the world flights take off, one going east, one going west. In this particular trip, I was flying with a friend named Brenda and we had a three day layover in Hong Kong. How'd you like some pearls, she said. Real ones? She took me on a little boat out to an island and I bought my first string of real pearls. 
That necklace has lasted a long time. My friendship with Brenda lasted even longer. But now this is long, and I'm watching it in pieces, and I'm like, I, she's talking about flying in the 70s, and I'm thinking, I don't think she, she doesn't look old enough to have been flying in the 70s. And then I googled Pan Am Betty. I couldn't find anybody like that. I thought it was also interesting. Of course, it's Pan Betty. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't find anybody that wrote a book or anything. I, I found it a little confusing. And I was watching it in pieces because it was kind of long. And then uh, at the end, there's a Q&A. And then she takes the wig off and says, it's a character. Uh, she's a writer. And this is a character. And I was like... Bing! <laughs> that makes sense because I was like, she just does not look old enough. So life has been dull. Um, you would think I'd be happy to have time off, but you just can't do much when you. My friend, I was talking to him, like, oh, I can't do very much. He's like, Yeah, because you have a stick for a leg. And I'm like, Yeah, just call me Peg. Anyway, uh, this story came from Kevin Elliott. Thank you, Kevin. You were sort of a bit of a godsend this month because I'm not exactly sure what the podcast is going to be like for the next two months since I'm not flying and I'm certainly not traveling, which is what the podcast is about. But I am trying my very best to get to work faster. So maybe it won't be the next two months that I'll have to struggle with the podcast. But anyway, this came from Kevin Elliott. It felt like just another flight for South African pilot Rudolf Erasmus until he noticed an extra passenger on his plane at 11,000 feet in the air. However, it wasn't a human, but a cobra slithering under his seat. To be honest, as if my brain did not register what was going on, he told the BBC. It was an odd moment of awe, he added, saying he initially thought the cold feeling on his back was his water bottle. I felt this cold sensation, sort of a crawling up my shirt, he said, thinking he may not have closed the bottle properly and the water might have been dribbling down his shirt. As I turned to the left and looked down, I saw the cobra receding, its head backwards underneath the seat. The private plane, a Beechcraft Baron 58, was carrying four passengers as well as the snake. A bite from a Cape Cobra is lethal and it kills someone in just 30 minutes. So not wanting to cause panic, the pilot says he thought carefully before calmly telling those on board that there was an extra, unwanted voyager. He was also so scared the snake might go to the back and cause mass panic. In the end, he decided to tell them. I did inform the passengers, listen, the snake is inside the aircraft. It's underneath my seat. So let's try to get down to the ground as soon as we can. So how did the passengers react? The pilot described a moment of absolute silence. You could hear a needle drop, and I think everybody froze for a moment or two. Pilots are trained for lots of scenarios, but certainly not dealing with a snake in the cockpit. But the pilot told the BBC that panicking would have just made the situation worse. The plane made a successful landing in the city of Wilcombe. The slithering passenger is still missing, as engineers who then stripped the airplane could not find it. 
The pilot has been hailed a hero, with a South African Civil Aviation Commissioner praising his great airmanship and deed, which saved all lives on board. That's about it for this episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I hope you'll join me again next time so we can hopefully at some point start traveling around the world together again. <laughs> Bye.